0: Our scripture reading this morning is coming from the book of Acts, which is the fourth book in the New Testament. A book that we've decided to look at over the next couple of weeks. We'll talk about it in a minute. But this morning I'm going to read from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Otherwise, you can just listen. But this is Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 12. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that as we read and meditate on your word, we, we recognize that It's not just any old book. It's not just a book that sits on the shelf that we pull aside from time to time, Lord, but it contains the very words of life. And that you say that when we look at your word, when we read it, when we study it, when we meditate on it, that your spirit comes in a miraculous way and begins to work on our hearts, God. We don't know how it happens. We don't know how it works out, but we know that it does because you promise it. So, Father, we pray over the next few minutes as as we meditate on your word, that you would show up because we need you. That you would mold our hearts, that you would mold our mind and our thinking, that you would draw us more into the image of you and your Savior. So, Father, meet us in this place and guide us as we reflect. In Christ's name, amen. So, as I mentioned before, we were looking at this book uh, called the Book of Acts, one of my uh, favorite books in all of the New Testament Because of what it tells us, because of the power that it contains, because of what happened, what it tells us, what happened in this first century. The book was written by Luke, uh, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And as you see in both the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, that this author is passionate about helping us see and understand the message of salvation. And in the book of Acts it tells us how this message of salvation transformed the first century world in incredibly powerful ways. Ways that we couldn't even imagine. And in it we observe these followers of Jesus Christ who lived with this powerful sense of mission that captured everything about them. And that mission drove them to take this message of salvation from city to city throughout the first century world. And in each city, they would, they would see massive people be converted to Christ, and they would see churches being planted, new expressions of worship being planted in different cities and in different nations throughout the first century world. But Luke's point is not just to show us history. The purpose of the book is not just to give us a historical account, but ultimately we've seen that the book is an invitation. It's an invitation for you and I to join into this mission, to join into this great movement, not just by accepting this message of salvation for ourselves, but by bearing the message in our lives, by being representatives of Jesus Christ, bearers of this message to a world that so desperately needs it, And what we find that as we bear this message, as we live lives centered around this mission, that we are satisfied at our deepest, most fundamental desires in life. Because we were created to be people who lived on mission. And this thing called church, this thing that we do every Sunday and this community of faith that we've given ourselves to, we've seen that this church has to be centered on this mission. In fact, if we lose that, If we lose our centeredness on the mission that God gives us as a church, then we lose the fundamental essence of what it means to be a church at its most foundational level. Last week, if you were with us, we took a really broad stroke and we looked at uh, how we were created to live uh, according to this mission. But what I'd like to do this week is start to focus in a little bit on what it means to be people who live in mission. To kind of focus our cameras, as it were, a little bit. To zoom in on several aspects of what this mission means for our lives. To understand what the mission is and to also understand what our role is in this mission of God. The first thing I want us to look at is the nature of the mission. And you see this in verse 6. The passage that we just read and uh, that, that Justin shared with the kids as well was a scene that's recorded for us in the book of Acts that records Jesus's last physical interaction with his disciples. He, wa- he had died, he had rose, risen from the dead, he had appeared to them for 40 days uh, in various accounts, and now he was leaving. So he was about to give them their last physical words, and last words, whenever you see them, are always important. So Jesus is about to give the disciples uh, his last words for them, his marching orders, his mission for their lives. But you have to think, it was also the disciples' last opportunity to ask Jesus a question. If they had a question that was on their minds, something that was burning in their hearts, it was their last opportunity to really ask this question of Jesus. So you see it in verse 6, where it says this. So when they had come together, they had asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You know, at this point in Acts, most of the people that were interacting with Jesus, most of his followers, most of his disciples at this point were of the Jewish nation. They were, on, they were of the nation of Israel. And if you read the, the, the Bible at all, you'll know that the nation of Israel had a very unique and long special relationship with God. From the time of Abraham that you read in the book of Genesis, God had a very unique and special relationship with Israel, one in which he always promised to be their God and to be faithful to them as long as they promised to be his people and to live in line with his will for the nation. Of course, it didn't mean that other nations or other nationalities were excluded. It simply meant that God chose the nation of Israel to have a special relationship with. He chose this nation to be a demonstration to all the other nations about what life looks like when it's lived in relationship with the Most Most High God. Yet what happens often in Israel's history, and what happens often uh, with us today too, is that this special relationship morphed into a sense of cultural elitism that Israel and the Jewish nation had. It was an issue that would be confronted all throughout the book of Acts. As uh, All throughout the book you see this kind of nationalism or this cultural elitism in the nation of Israel being challenged by the message of the gospel. Because for centuries the Jews believed that when the Messiah came he would do something very specific for them. They believed that he would liberate them and establish them as the foremost nation in history. At this point, the, the Jewish people were an oppressed people group. It happened multiple times throughout their history. And at this point, the Jewish nation was living under the thumb or living under the rule of the Roman nation. And they most desired to be liberated. They wanted to have their political freedom. They wanted to be established as the top nation. And they were longing for the Messiah and the Savior to come to do this very thing, they believed that is what the Messiah's role was to do. In fact, the story told in, in 160 about this thing in the Jewish nation called the Maccabean Revolt. And it was a point in the Jewish history where they, they rose up against their oppressors and they, they had some victory uh, in, in terms of fighting against their oppressors. But ultimately, even that movement was squelched and the Jewish nation had to continue to wait They had to continue to wait for the Messiah, this promised Messiah to come, who they believed would establish their nation as the foremost nation in the planet. So this is why Jesus' followers continued to ask him questions along these lines. They continued to ask him questions like, Jesus, when will you restore the nation of Israel? When will you restore the kingdom of Israel? And they kept asking him this Because this was the thing that they'd most hoped for. This was the thing that they'd waited throughout generations and centuries. It's the thing that their grandfather waited for. The thing their great-grandfather waited for. The time when Israel would be liberated. So they continued to ask Jesus this question. But what Jesus continued to do and what he patiently did up until the very moment was gently and carefully tell them that this was actually not his objective. This was not his mission, because his mission was not to liberate a chosen nation from political oppression. His mission was much deeper. His mission was, and it is today, to liberate a chosen people from the spiritual oppression that we all feel due to our sin. You know, when it comes to our own lives and when it comes to our own mission or our sense of mission in life, we tend to do the very same thing that Israel uh, had a hard time doing. We don't want to accept Jesus' mission as he presents it to us, but we'd rather Jesus fit into our own agendas for life. We'd rather fit into his own, uh, to our own plans... You know, it's Jesus has this mission, that's all well and good, but we have our own mission for life and we want Jesus to fit into that box. We want Him to fit into our own agenda in our own mission. Or that we think that this mission is about something different. We may think it's about gaining some sort of political control or electing Christians as politicians. We might think that the mission is primarily about overturning some sort of court decision or embracing some sort of pit political ideology. We might think that the mission is about reestablishing some sort of moral compass or moral conscience in our world or getting more people to come to church. Maybe it involves all of these things that we just talked about, but what Jesus comes to say is that's not the primary thing that he came to do because the nature of his mission was about spreading the message about how you and I could be freed from a greater oppression, from how we could be freed from a greater tyranny, how we could be freed from the oppression of sin in and of itself. Because that was Jesus's mission, many people had a very hard time accepting him. You know, we're going to read through the book of Acts about how there were massive conversions, there was massive amounts of people that came to Christ, but there was an equally massive amount of people that rejected Jesus and rejected his followers because they didn't want to embrace what Jesus was truly saying. They didn't want to embrace this powerful sense of mission because it didn't define their expectations. It didn't fit with what they wanted with their lives. So because of that, they reject him. And frankly, this is why most people reject Jesus today, because he doesn't fit in their life. He doesn't fit with their agenda. And we have to wonder why. What is it about our culture now? What is it about the first century culture that made so many people want to reject Jesus? And I think part of the answer is because they, like us, are radically out of touch with our greatest need in life. We are all radically out of touch with that thing which we most need. We often think that maybe our greatest need in life is is for more money, or our greatest need in life is to have a little more political sway, or to have a little more success in life. We think that our greatest need is to be maybe politically liberated as a church or to have our immoral society become more Christianized or to have our financial stress alleviated. Whatever it is, we think those things are our greatest need. But the mission of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, tells us that our greatest need is much more profound and it's much deeper. We need to be freed from the tyranny of sin that reigns in our lives. And that is the very thing that Jesus came to free us from. But I think what also Luke wants us to see is not just, not just the nature of this mission, but also the extent of this mission, mission. You see it in verse 8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you've ever heard this passage preached on before, most pastors like to talk about this in, in, in terms that are geographic. Because they look at a passage like this and they see these cities. They see Jerusalem and, and the first century here is when they thought of Jerusalem, they would think of their hometown, of the, their neighborhood, the place where they lived. Judea and Samaria were the cities that were that were nearest. They were the cities that were that were closest by. They were the next neighboring cities. And of course, the last is the ends of the the ends of the earth. So people, when they read this, they think that the extent of this mission is purely geographic. That we start by sharing Christ with those people most immediate to us. And then we move on to the cities near us and then to the nations all around us. And of course, that is part of what Jesus is saying. But the extent goes much greater than just geography. Because the first century hearers that heard this would not have thought in only geographic terms. Because remember that the hearers of this were Jews. They were Jews that had a particular nationalism, a particular cultural elitism. And when they heard Samaria, they wouldn't have thought in terms of geographic terms. They would have reacted in a very different way because the Samaritans in their minds were half breeds. They were foreigners. They were impure. They were unclean people. They would have thought about the Gentiles, the non-Jews that were out there, and they wouldn't, they, they would have had a hard time believing that this mission of God wasn't just about them, but it was actually about those people in their lives and in their circles that they most struggled to love. Those people that they loathed, those people that they believed to be dirty, and those people that they believed to be unclean. And what Jesus is saying is the mission is not just about you. It's not just about your people. It's not just about your desires or your culture or your certain elitism or your nation. It's about everyone. The extent of this mission breaks every barrier that we may place in front of it. I don't know if you uh, read the story, uh, read the stories in the newspaper this week about. Actually, it wasn't in the newspaper. I think it was in the in the on the internet about some of the articles that have gone around about Baltimore uh, that have been really popular on the internet. I know our, our core team kicked them around a bit as well as we read them. You know, whenever we think about Acts and we think about you know the uh, what it means to be a, a church that exists in a city. We always have to confront some of the realities of what it means to live in Baltimore City and some of the realities of what it means to plant a church in this city. And uh, that's why these articles were so important that I think came around. What happened is, uh, and the woman who I think, her name is Tracy Halverson, wrote an article that was entitled, Baltimore City, You're Breaking My Heart. I don't know if you saw this. But in the article, uh, she talks about some of the issues that she has with Baltimore. And what made this so interesting is this article went viral. I mean, it was all over all sorts of media outlets. And in it, she just talks about her own frustrations with Baltimore. And it prompted lots of responses, uh, some that were good and some that were parodies, like someone wrote, Baltimore City, you're breaking my car. And they talked about all the bad potholes that are all over the city. But one of the things that she does is expresses her frustrations about what's going on in the city, and mostly she talks about the crime and her own frustration with the crime. One of the responses was written by a name named Lawrence Lanahan, and he wrote his article called, Whose Heart is Baltimore Breaking Really? And in it, he argued that the real issue is not so much about the crime that exists in our city. But he he mentions how a lot of the issues in Baltimore seem to stem from divisions that that go along the lines of race and class. And what he believes is part of the issue of Baltimore, part of the crime and the issues we face in the city, have more to do with the issues of race and class and inequity and all the things that come with it. Now we've talked about this as a church several times. It's important for us to talk about this because we're a church that exists in the city. We've talked about how it really seems as you drive throughout the city that there are neighborhoods of opportunity, and then there are neighborhoods that are very lacking in opportunity. Someone once wrote a book called, um, Intero Patello wrote a book called uh, Not in My Neighborhood, which is a book that's written about these divides in Baltimore. And one of the things that he says in the neighborhood is Baltimore is an incredibly divided city. In fact, he says it's so divided. He was a reporter that wrote for the Baltimore Sun, who actually grew up in South Africa, and he said the divisions are so severe in this city that it reminds him of South African apartheid. We live in a divided city. There's no doubt about it. NPR knew that it was true. They wrote a whole series on, called the, um, uh, what is the series called, called uh, "The Lines Between Us." It was a year-long series that talked all about the divisions of Baltimore. So there's no question that we live in a very divided city. And we've wrestled with, as a church plan, about what it means to be in Baltimore City. What it means to confront the divisions that exist in this city. And we've wondered how we do it. But it often reminds us of the book of Acts and the extent of the mission that God calls us to. Because often when we read about the Jews, we, we read about them with criticism. But the question is, are we really any different? We may not have bought into some sort of cultural elitism, but what are ways that we've further divided the city? What are ways that that we believe that the mission of God applies to us, but it doesn't apply to all those other people? Have we bought into or fallen victim to our own cultural elitism? And it makes us wonder, when we look at the city, is there anything that breaks through all of that? Is there anything that breaks through the the divisions of our own heart? Is there anything that breaks through the divisions of our neighborhoods? And what Acts tells us is the only true thing that breaks down all those divisions is the mission of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what Luke wants us to see is that this message of the gospel is the one true message that breaks down all barriers. Its power is equally as strong in neighborhoods of opportunity as it is in neighborhoods without opportunity. It breaks down every racial and geographic barrier. Its power and ability is to transform lives for people that are rich and for people that are poor, for people that are white, for people that are black, for whatever race and whatever nationality it comes, it has the power, it is the only thing that has the power to break down all those divisions. It breaks down every cultural barrier and every socioeconomic barrier. But that very thing goes against our tendencies, because our tendencies in life, in our sin and our brokenness, is to enclave ourselves around people that only look like us, and act just like us. One of the funny things that I always remember remember when I think about this is, when I was in college, and I was a senior in college, I remember the first week when all the college freshmen moved in, And as college seniors, we just kind of roll our eyes and say, oh, here are these freshmen, these immature freshmen that are now showing up and experience all this freedom. And we look at ourselves and we're like, we don't even know how to relate to these people, right? Now, that was us four years ago, but now we don't even know how to relate to these people. And then, of course, when I graduated from college, I could no longer relate to people that were in college, right? because that, we had a whole different life. And then when I graduated from college, I could no longer relate to college people. And then when I got married, I could no longer relate to single people, right? I just couldn't relate to them. And then, and then when we had our first kid, I could no longer relate to married people without kids. Then when we had our second kid, I could no longer relate to people that only had one kid. You see, the tendency in my heart and the tendency of all of our hearts is to enclave ourselves with people that only look just like us. And in so doing, we repeat the same error that the Jews tended to fall in. We repeat this sort of elitism, and we forget the extent of the gospel to break down all barriers in life, both big ones and small ones. We inherently throw up all sorts of barriers, but the message of salvation breaks all of them down. Because if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that the gospel went to Antioch, it went to Athens, it went to Thessalonica, it went to Corinth, it went to Ephesus, all these different cities with different cultures and different people groups and different languages and customs. Yet the gospel was as equally powerful in each and every one of those contexts because the gospel is bigger than any barrier that exists. It is the one true message that smashes through our own cultural elitism. It is the one true message that translates all race and language and culture. It's the one true message that breaks down all barriers. But the other thing that it's important for us to see is the people who were on this mission. So we've looked at the, the, we've looked at the nature of the mission. We've looked at the extent of the mission. But what about these carriers of this mission? What about these men and these women whose lives were set on fire with the gospel, who transformed this first century world? You know, the truth is we live in a very specialized culture nowadays. A very professionalized, specialized culture. Uh, This week we live in a neighborhood, my wife and I live in a neighborhood, that's known for flooded basements, right? So we're always in fear of the dreaded flooded basement. So this week when our sump pump, which goes off all the time, When our sump pump uh, went off and started making a funny noise, we got really nervous. So what did we do? We called a sump pump expert to come and check out our sump pump. If our heater makes a funny noise, we call a heating expert. If our air conditioner makes a funny noise, we call an air conditioning expert. We live in a culture where there's all these specialized and professionalized opinions I remember one day when, when, our daughter, uh, when our daughter hurt her tooth. We, we took her to see the primary care physician, and the primary care physician collected the money and said, well, I'm not qualified to look at your daughter's tooth, so you need to go to the dentist. And we said, okay. So we schedule an appointment. We take our daughter to the dentist and, and pay him his fee, and he says, well, I'm not really qualified to look at kids' teeth, So you need to go to a pediatric dentist. So, of course, we make the appointment to go see the pediatric dentist. And the whole while, I'm just wishing and hoping that somebody would just look at my daughter's teeth and to see if they're okay. But see, what the reality is, in everything, you seem, what's required in our culture now are specialists who are supposed to be the experts in a certain field, and everybody else just tends to be ordinary or unqualified. But this is not true of those people that carried this powerful message in the book of Acts. One author wrote, This movement happened through unqualified and ordinary people. You know, somehow we've transferred this into the church as well. We think that the mission of God only applies to the super-educated, that it only applies to the specialist or the the master's degree candidate or the gifted or the the ordained or the expert's. Uh, And and sometimes we miss out on what the mission of God means for us as individuals. Because what we find in the first century is that this mission was engaged every sense, every, every element of every sector of culture. That you didn't have to have this ordained masters of divinity in order to live for the mission of God. It was ordinary, regular people that set the first century on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our denomination, you have to go through a very rigorous process in order to be ordained. You have to go through multiple tests and multiple committees and all this sort of stuff. And I can remember when I went through the process, I wondered uh, would even the apostles make it through this process? Would they even be able to do this themselves? And I think I had to come to the conclusion that no, they probably wouldn't. Because when you look at these apostles, you realize that Peter himself was a fisherman. Matthew was a, a, a corrupt and uh, a corrupt tax collector who was hated by most people. Some of the apostles were, were uh, radical zealots who only cared about uh, their radical agenda. None of them had any sort of credentials. And the one guy that probably did have academic credentials was Saul. And what those academic credentials got him was they turned him into a persecutor of the faith rather than a defender of the faith, until he met Jesus himself. These men and women had no seminary training. They didn't go to the latest evangelistic seminar. They simply had experienced the best news ever. And because of that, they couldn't help but share this message of the gospel to everybody who came in their path. When I always think about this, I think about, you ever received a juicy bit of gossip? I know we all say we don't gossip. Nobody in here gossips. Of course, none of us would do that but we all can relate to people. We've heard stories about people that gossip, right? And we've heard about people that receive a juicy bit of gossip, and all they want to do is just let that gossip out, right? They can't wait to tell somebody about it. And it's as if, if they hold it in any longer, that they are going to burst with this message. And that's the sense I get from these first century Christians. They weren't necessarily the most educated They weren't necessarily the the finest preachers they hadn't been schooled in the best methods of evangelism but they had simply heard the best news ever because of that they would they felt they would burst if they didn't tell everyone they knew about this life-giving message of jesus christ they were ordinary folks like you and i and it reminds us that this mission requires no master's degree in divinity or in religion It is for regular ordinary people who have discovered the best news ever and can't help but tell others about Jesus Christ. So we've looked at the nature of the mission, we've looked at the extent of the mission, we've looked at the carriers of the mission, but maybe most importantly is that we have to look at the object of the mission itself. Jesus himself said, you will be my witnesses in in chapter 1 verse 8. And what Jesus is telling us is that this mission is not primarily about pointing people to a new philosophy of life. It's not primarily about giving people a new formula for happiness. It's not primarily about a new morality or a new conscience for life. It's not primarily about some sort of new political ideology, but the mission is about pointing people to a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. And it makes the mission not primarily about what you do, but it's primarily about who you know. When I was in high school, I took a, a year-long Bible class on the book of Acts, and I remember virtually nothing from that class at all except the outline that the teacher wanted us to know about the book of Acts. It's the outline that makes sense of the entire book. It's the outline that that is the outline for every single sermon in the book of Acts, and it's this. The main point is that you and I killed Jesus Christ, God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses. Every element, every aspect of the mission of God, every element of this book is all about Jesus. It's all about a life-giving, personal relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is what the mission is primarily about. There are lesser things involved, but primarily it is about pointing people and directing people to the most life-giving relationship there is, the life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ himself. And What it means to be a people on mission is to simply invite people to a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. To demonstrate a life that is lived like Jesus. A life that gives itself away for the sake of other people. A life that points itself in everything to Jesus Christ himself. You know, last week I ended the sermon with an illustration about the, uh, the Baltimore fire. And uh, if you weren't here last week, you'll know that you'll, uh, we, we talked about how 110 years ago, about two weeks ago, was the anniversary of the, Bal- the Great Baltimore Fire, a fire that destroyed literally almost the entire downtown section of Baltimore City. It, it burned down, I think, roughly under 100, over 140 acres of, of, of downtown Baltimore. But rem- miraculously, in that whole story, only one person died in the Baltimore Fire, 140 acres were burned down to the ground, but really only one person lost their life in that fire. You know, in God's cosmic story of redemption, only one life had to be taken, but it was the life of his very own son, Jesus Christ. And he, his life, his death, his resurrection is the message of salvation, the means by which you and I are released from the tyranny of sin, sin, which is our greatest and most profound need. So if you're here this morning, and uh, all this is strange, and all this is new, yet you've never realized that, wow, my greatest problem in life isn't my financial stress, or it isn't uh, getting that next promotion, or it isn't my kids that don't seem to obey me. The greatest problem in life is the tyranny of sin that exists in our life. The oppression that you and I feel, that is our greatest need, and that is the very thing that Jesus came to save and release us from. Know that this gospel, that this good news, doesn't primarily invite you to a system of morality or some sort of political ideology, but it invites you to enter into a relationship with the living God. A relationship that breaks down all barriers of race and culture and socioeconomics, but ultimately it breaks down the barriers of our sins and our missteps and our frailties. But there are also those of us that are here this morning that have heard this most of our lives. We understand maybe that we are supposed to live lives that are on mission, but we struggle with this mission truly gripping our hearts and truly gripping our lives. Because our passion for the ministry ultimately is directly related to our passion for Christ himself. So much so that half-hearted passion for this mission of God stems from a half-hearted passion for Christ himself. So the answer for me and for you who've heard this message so many times in our life is to embrace the gospel of faith once and again for ourselves, to rediscover the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to rediscover Christ himself, and allow our passion for Christ to propel us into mission for him. To break down every barrier that we throw up in our lives, to every barrier that exists in our culture, to spread the message, the message of the gospel to those who most desperately need it, and to remind ourselves of it every single day. Because that's what it means to live lives who are gripped by the mission of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that you don't just call us to be in a life-giving relationship with you, but you call us to live on mission. You call us to be given to something greater than ourselves. And for that, we are thankful, Father. But ultimately, we're thankful that you don't, not just that you give us a mission, but that you gave us your very self. That you sent your Son to die on our behalf, to, to suffer the perfect sacrifice that we couldn't do on our own, to come and to give us forgiveness of sins. And it's for that that we rejoice this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.